This is Women Speak Cyber, the podcast with the diversity of ideas critical to solving the complex challenges of securing businesses and people today. We believe all voices need to be heard. Whether you're an aspiring speaker, leader, or wanting to advocate for others, join Louisa P and Louisa V and their special guests who will share tools, tips, and inspirational stories that will help you to speak cybersecurity with confidence and impact. So Shanna Daly, welcome to the Women Speak Cyber podcast. We're so excited you could join us. Um, Thank you for making some time to have a chat with us. Uh, Anytime. I'm very happy to be here and and honoured to be a part of the podcast. So thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, it's a pleasure. For those people that don't know you, would you mind just sharing maybe a little bit about your career history um, from where you started to where you are today? Yeah, sure. So my career has been, I think, an interesting one and probably not very relatable for people who are starting out in the industry today. I actually lucked into cybersecurity in a certain way. And I think a lot of my generation or our generation of people in cybersecurity did the same. So I started in cyber information security 22 years ago now. I got a job because I was working as a tech support, you know, someone doing tech support for an ISP. And I had decided that I needed to do something else. And I met a girl who was at my fire twirling group on a Wednesday night down in Newtown. And she said, look, we're hiring for people in our PKI data center. Do you want to apply for that? And I was like, sure. I don't know what PKI is or (laughs) anything. I had no idea what I was getting myself into, but I knew that I, you know, I was going to give it a shot. So I went for the interview. I had purple and orange hair the day before the interview. So I dyed it all one color red. (laughs) turned up for the interview and got the job. And that was, you know, the company that then became Verizon in Australia. And I stayed within that company for 12 years. So I actually got to do a lot of work at the data center, cut my teeth on security engineering, networking, PKI, obviously. Um, I built a PKI infrastructure for one of the Australian banks, way back when. So I did everything from documentation to implementation, which was really interesting and a lot of work. Spent a lot of time in Canberra. So I got to work within a lot of different teams during my time at Verizon, which I was really grateful for. Maybe, you know, every 18 months to two years or so, I got to shift around, particularly within the professional services business. So we did everything from security assessments, auditing, PCI DSS assessments. I did vulnerability assessments and back in the day calling them ethical hacking, which I don't even think you could call what we did ethical hacking pen testing these days. It was pretty much a souped up vulnerability scan. You know, I installed firewalls for customers. I went through and, you know, installed infrastructure. So I spent a lot of time in data centers, racking and stacking and never cabling. Do not ever ask me to cable. I will send you a picture of the cables under my desk and they are horrible. (laughs) I give people with OCD massive panic attacks when I send them photos of my cabling. Um, (laughs) But I eventually went through to the IR team at Verizon and one of the other consultants who was leading the incident response team at the time, Mark Gowdy, reached out to me when he had a job 
and needed some extra assistance and said, would you be interested in, you know, doing some work with the IR team and, and getting to know us? And I was like, yeah, for sure, definitely. And got to work on an engagement with Mark and some of the, the US team and loved it. And then went about transferring over to Mark's team and, and in incident response and digital forensics. And that sort of was around about 2010 that I did that and have focused on incident response and digital forensics ever since. I love it for some reason. It's where I find my happy place. So yeah, I've, I've done a little bit of everything and then was lucky enough to find what actually I was very passionate about within the, the cybersecurity realm. So it's been a fun journey. Interesting times. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I'm just, I'm just taking it, taking it all in because there's so much variety in what you've done. And so I'm, I'm going to touch on a couple of things. So we have something in common because my first role was a PKI related. <laughs> it's thing. the next I, big went, thing, right? It's the next big thing. 20 years ago, it's still. Yes. Not, yeah. Yeah. We used to say it was going to be the year of PKI. And uh, you're yeah. nodding because I'm sure you heard yeah. that as well. You didn't work for Baltimore uh, Technologies, did you? No, I worked for Encipher. So, ah. um, yeah, they were a crypto HSM vendor. Yeah, for, I remember them. The UK. Well, Baltimore were from Ireland. Yes, and one of my colleagues when I was at Encipher moved from Baltimore to, to Encipher. Yeah, it's, a, it's such a kind of niche area of the industry as well. So you tend to kind of know that some of the same people. But yeah, so it sounds like you really just embraced every opportunity that was given to you in that organization. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, definitely. I feel like I'm a little bit less risk adverse than a lot of people in that way. I'm okay to just give it a shot, even if I don't know everything. I mean, I think I felt that way my entire career in the industry that I don't know what I'm doing. So taking on another role or another job or engagement where I don't know what I'm doing is just part and parcel with, you know, run with it and see what happens. A classic example of that for me was I did a stint in the Philippines where I was the interim CISO for a telecommunications company over there that was a fairly large conglomerate of different organizations. And it was a really interesting experience. And I call it interesting. I had no idea what I was going to be getting myself in for, what kind of work I would be doing, how I would even get the work done. But my manager at the time said, do you want to give it a shot? thought, why not? I may as well. This is my opportunity to just try it out. So I did it. You know, there was some success and there was some not success. It went okay. But I think it's really important to just back yourself and try. And hopefully with backing yourself, you have the support of your team members as well. I think that's always been something that I've been very lucky to have in my career is really, really supportive colleagues people that were always around me looking to push me in the right direction and push me up. So that's been, I think, what has given me the courage to, to move forward. You talked about kind of finding your thing that you love, that digital forensics incident response piece. Would you be able to kind of describe what it is you love about it? <laughs> is this <laughs> particular element of it that gets you out every morning? <laughs> it is something about the hyper-focus. I've uh, been talking with Bex, one of my colleagues, 
And it really is that hyper-focus of being able to sit and get lost in something for hours and hours and a lot of troubleshooting. You have to spend a lot of time just sifting through data, looking for something that looks anomalous or connections or constantly trying to pick things apart. It's hard to describe why that's exciting. I really like the how things work and putting the pieces together. So if you've got an attacker that has come in on multiple systems, it's very fulfilling to actually find what they've done and piece it all together and put together a timeline. It, it becomes a bit like putting together a puzzle. Anyone in any kind of investigation job, you know, law enforcement, things like that, I'd say it's the, a similar reason why they do their job or why they love their job as well is, is putting it all together, is starting with nothing and not knowing what's happening to then coming up with the story at the end to say, well, actually, this is what they did. Once they were in, this is what they looked at. This is what they took. You know, this is the full scope. But even when it's not to do with, you know, an actual engagement, I, on the side, am setting up some malware analysis infrastructure at home to play with in a little bit of a lab and doing some research around some of the samples that are submitted from Australians in the public submission. So things like any run and virus total, looking at whatever's been submitted by from an Australian IP and then taking a look at what are the things that are actually hitting Australia. So I am complete nerd when it comes to everything that is to do with digital forensics and IR. I think it's just my hobby and my job, which can be good and can be bad. I spend a lot of time on the weekends doing something that's part of my job, which is a bit crazy. In between riding horses and yeah. your dogs and... Yeah, some of yeah. your other fabulous hobbies. <laughs> uh, it's I actually had to introduce some of those things on a call last week. I'm doing the Women Rising program, which has been really fantastic so far. It's only been the first few weeks, though, and they ask you what brings you joy. You know what what outside of work? And I'm well. I've got two dogs, two horses. I love Pilates and yoga. I, you know, do a lot of walking. I run. <laughs> I was like, I don't know how I fit everything in, actually. Gardening, I have a great garden. I love gardening, actually. It's just something, you know, I like that creation part of gardening where you grow pretty flowers that I bring inside or, you know, tomatoes that I cook with or I've, this year I started pickling cucumbers. I don't know, I'm turning into a nonna very early in life, I think, getting, getting myself ready for retirement. <laughs> well, I'm finding this an inspiration uh, because I've just moved to a bigger property. I have a big garden that is currently a blank canvas. There um, is a lot of potential to grow a lot of cucumbers and do a lot of cucumber pickling in my future. <laughs> uh, I will send you the recipe. It's so good. So good. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. I'm going to need to start that next year. <laughs> yeah. There's a whole different LV that's now appearing on her social media where she's looking very rural in her <laughs> boots um, on ride on mowers and she's chopping wood and yeah, that's it's so amazing. Good. It's just a whole so other good. person. But I think it's so important to have that outlet. You obviously spend a lot of time in front of your computer, like you said, doing some of this jigsaw puzzling. 
But the fact that you've got that outlet to get outside, to be in the fresh air, I know LV does the same. It's just so important to have that balance. Yeah, definitely. I think without it, it's really hard to turn off from Mm. work and particularly working from home, which I feel more comfortable working from home because Mm. it takes me quite some time to get into the groove. And then once I'm in the groove, I can sit here for hours and, you know, I could be like six or seven hours working on something nonstop. If I'm in an office, I get interrupted and then I have to spend the next, you know, 45 minutes getting my head back into focusing. Mm. Having said that, even at home, it's really hard because sometimes I'll go and have dinner and then come back and do more work. You know, I've been working on something and I want to finish it. But having the responsibility of going to my horse, for example, and I have to get out of the house and I have to go and be outdoors and, you know, walk around with a wheelbarrow. And I think I need that responsibility of having something outside and even the garden in that same way. If I don't get out there, my partner doesn't do anything in the garden really. He mows the lawn and that's it. We don't have a right on lawnmower, unfortunately. Our backyard (laughs) is not big enough for one of those, maybe one day. But it it does mean I need to get out there and do things. And I think that's super important of having the need to get out there. Otherwise, I would probably just be a vegetable in front of my computer for a whole lot longer. Yeah. And I guess we, you know, there's there's quite a lot written about burnout in the industry broadly and and just this sense that cybersecurity is a 24-7 thing. You know, it it never stops because because our adversaries don't. So Mm. we've obviously all got to know a lot of people in the industry. And the thing that is often a common thread for us all is that passion, that wanting to do everything we can to protect the organizations we work for or with. But with that passion often comes that it's hard to switch off. It's it's hard to carve out that that time. So yeah, I, I think it's it's great to hear that you have those outlets as well to to switch off wherever possible and take yourself outside and yeah yeah, yeah burnout's hard. I mean, I probably am the biggest cause of my own burnout. I wouldn't necessarily blame anybody else. It's just that you know really difficult to switch off sometimes. As you said, you feel that responsibility to be helping your customers, you know, working for as a consultant, it's very hard to actually stop when you're, especially in the first couple of hours of the first day of an incident with a customer and they're frantic. It's really difficult to stop working and you often Mm. do a lot of overtime. That's not necessary in a lot of cases, but you do it anyway, just because you want to make sure that they're getting the answers and that you're helping them enough. Burnouts are... Definitely a big issue, and I think that we're seeing the fruits of that, so to speak. This, you know, over the last year or so, with the you know the great resignation and people moving on, and and there's talk that this is going to keep continuing on for some time now as people are readjusting, and when companies, organisations are wanting people to come back into the office, and people have realised that I can do my job anywhere. Mm. I don't need to be in the office, and I actually save three hours a day in in travel and I can be around for my children and then work a little bit later. So I think that, you know, we're we're kind of all at that point where we realize that you've got options, which is being a good thing that's come out of the last two years, I guess, for people, if there's much much good that's come out of it, that's for sure. So I think one thing that's really unique to you that 
if I think about the other people that we've spoken to is you've had a lot of confidence to to chop and change roles. And I think a lot of people that we've spoken to have tended to stick in single roles for probably a longer period of time. When it comes to that confidence, has that then, since we are Women Speak Cyber, has that then kind of manifested in your ability to stand up and present both at conferences, in meetings? Has that confidence kind of been in all parts of your career or? Oh, gosh, no. I'm still not confident. No. And I used to have almost have panic attacks, even when I would have to present, you know, in a sales capacity in a closed room with two or three people. It was, I used to feel so horrible. I'm not sure where that confidence comes from, to be honest. In a lot, I think it's a little bit more around me just wanting to do something else rather than confidence. I, I'm that kind of person where if I feel like I'm at a point where I can't go any further, I'm more likely to, you know, get off the train sort of thing. In relationships, for example, you know, I'm the person that says, yeah, no, this is not working. Let's, let's break up. Right. And there's many people out there that would stick in that relationship for another three, four, five years. I'm the person that says, no, I'm not happy. This is, this is not working for me. And I, I'm a bit like that with my, with my job roles. And sometimes I feel like I get to a point where I've done what I've wanted to do within that organization or I've fulfilled whatever purpose I needed to fill for myself or for them. And then it's time to go somewhere else. Because if you get to that point where you're super unhappy or you're not progressing or learning, then you become a little bit of a liability even for your team. You, you won't work well with your team. You're not present. And that's not a good thing for you. And it's not a good thing for the people that you work with. So I'm pretty cognizant of that. If I'm unhappy, oh, people know it. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> I just, <laughs> I can't hide my emotions very well at all. So I'm an open book when it comes to being, you know, you know when I'm happy and you know when I'm not. So if I'm not happy, then I can't be around people bringing them down as well. It's just not fair. So yeah, so I don't know if it's if it's necessarily confidence. My confidence speaking, I am really still getting on my feet when it comes to speaking confidently and doing the virtual presentations has helped a lot and you know we would talk about ComfyCon actually hosting that has given me some confidence around just get out there and talk and being able to deliver presentations virtually where I can have my sheet up where I, nobody notices, well, nobody knows that I'm reading off a, a piece of paper sort of thing. I'd hate to be up on stage with a piece of paper and looking down, you know, mm. how they read like in government where you're reading your script. But you can kind of do that a little bit easier virtually. So that's given me some confidence in practicing how I deliver which has been really good. So I'm actually doing my first in-person conference next week and I'm going to be testing if I can still manage to deliver my presentation the same way as I do it online. But I think it is a little bit about practicing more, but it's also a little bit about just giving it a go and I'm always anxious. I get a lot of butterflies in my stomach beforehand and, you know, often feel physically sick before I have to go up on stage and present. 
And it's not a nice feeling. And I know a lot of people feel that way as well. And it's not a thing that you think you're ever going to be able to get over. But if you can walk up on stage and try and have some fun, you know, maybe break the ice a little bit at first, it can really help you relax and it will help you get some feedback from the audience, which then helps you relax as well. So that's kind of the, the approach that I start taking now. And it's very difficult virtually. You know, you tell a joke and you get zero feedback, hoping that it's not because my jokes are bad. It's just that it's virtual and no one can actually respond. But that has been super helpful just to get that confidence. It's a really difficult one, I think, presenting. I know some people seem to be a natural, you know, they just walk up on stage. And I think maybe 50% of those people who seem to be a natural are actually, can I say, shitting themselves as well? Packing it. <laughs> packing it. Yes. <laughs> I think um, you're, you're right. Like the more people that we talk to, the more we, we've realized over the last few years that the majority of people actually really hate public presentations you know they just don't like it I can talk for an hour on so many topics one-to-one or one to you know a few but the minute that I'm the center of everyone's attention and everyone is looking at me and I tend to feel like I get stage fright and I can't remember what I'm going to talk about and I forget my points and so then you find yourself looking at the slides or you know looking around Oh, I've gone off on a tangent and I actually can't remember what my point is. So I think the other thing that I'm going to have to be okay with is is still having my little sheet and feeling that it's okay for me to check it. I think that's the other thing, you know, we're told, no, you have to look like you've remembered everything. There's so many rules around presenting that it makes you feel like if you're not human, you shouldn't be up on stage. And I think that's a little bit unfair because we can't all remember an hour talk and make sure that we stick to our given topic. I'm, I'm, I'm huge on tangents. I will take us on a tangent four hours away and then we'll come back and go, (laughs) what, how did we get here? But yeah, I think it's just making it okay to stop and go, hang on a second. I just, you know, make sure I'm getting back on track and, and that being okay. And I think, the audience doesn't mind that. They don't, they don't mind. They're quite happy as long as you're giving them a good story and, and you know, you're talking about something interesting. But we mind ourselves yeah. and we are the ones who are telling ourselves, no, you can't do that. That's unacceptable. But, you know, we're not Bill Gates and we're not up on stage to a million people and we don't have, you know, that team of potentially hundreds of people in the background who've written the slides, who've written the talk, who've trained the person. They've done mm. multiple, you know, this talk multiple times. It's really difficult when we're, we're there to compare ourselves to some of the TED speakers and, mm. and stuff like that. So I think we have to give ourselves a little bit of a break when we're just us, you know, doing our jobs and talking at a small conference. Be a little bit kind to yourself. That's such a good point. I do feel like the bar is so high for public speaking now and you because of TED Talks and you're right, you know, the Bill Gates of the world and just how those speeches are delivered and you've you've just raised a really important point. There's probably a team of, yeah, so many people getting them ready for that moment. Yeah, we should definitely not compare ourselves. It's good to aspire, 
to just be an, a, just a phenomenal public speaker. It's something that I would love to crack one day, you know, hopefully in this lifetime. <laughs> but, but yeah, just, just with the bar that high, it, you're right. We need to be kinder to ourselves and just as long as you, and this is what our, our coach, Emily Edgeley often kind of talks to us and the, and the, cohort of Women Speak Cyber about is think about what do you want the audience to take away, you know, and, and that what's that one key message and focus on that message. And if they've taken it away and, you know, they've, they've taken action as a result of that message, then that's really all that matters about the talk is just delivering that gift to the audience of a story or a message or whatever it is you want them to take away or an action you want them to take. So I, I love that way she gets us thinking. It's easy to get overwhelmed and be unkind to yourself <laughs> if you uh, if you go off on a tangent or something, which is nothing wrong yeah. with that. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually did Emily's Powerful Presenter course last year and found it really, really fabulous and useful. And I still go back now to her worksheets when I'm building out a presentation to use those to structure. And, you know, yeah, I mean, think big. I, I've realized this year, I, I'm like, I actually would love for someone to ask me to keynote at a conference. You know, how do I get to that point to keynote at a conference? Like that would be super exciting. It would be also super, super scary. And I don't know what I would do if it actually happened. But, you know, I think that's going to be my public speaking or, or sharing goal. I would like to start giving back as much as possible, when, whether it comes to, you know, talking about how I got where I am or, you know, helping women in security or some of the technical things that I do and helping teach people how to do digital forensics or incident response, what are the tools, how to approach these sort of things. So, yeah, I think that's going to be one of my next goals is to hopefully overseas because then I can get a trip to somewhere <clears throat> besides London or, you know, the American one. Drop your wish list. Yeah, yeah I was about to say. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be super fun. I've noticed event organisers are really starting to try and mix it up where they would often, you would find the same people keynoting at every event. I think there's been a real shift in the last sort of 18 months where they've actually started to branch out a little bit. And I think they've also paid attention to who's on a lot of those virtual events that have been running and have been so popular and we'll circle back to ComfyCon as one of those. I think they're also starting to, you know, to see events like B-Sides, which were slightly less commercialized and they're going, you know, this is actually what people want to hear, which is, which is really refreshing. And I think when I see the speaker list come out for events now, there's a lot of new faces, which is exciting too. Yeah. And, you know, what we're doing with Project Friedman and all the new faces as well, that's what we're hoping to do. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. It's it's pretty exciting to see all of the, you know, the lists of people that are talking at the different conferences and the people that we've got talking at ComfyCon. I even went back to the YouTube videos from the first ComfyCon and there are some amazing presentations you know, we're so lucky to have these people sharing their experiences and their knowledge and info. And we had everything from technical through to, you know, mental health and mm. even how to meditate. It was really great to offer that inclusive, you know, as this is all part of cybersecurity. You know, cybersecurity is not just big data and 
you know, how do you secure the cloud and all of those, you know, are you IRAP assessed or whatever it might be. You know, people in cyber experience so many different things and there are a bunch of conferences around that actually deal with all of that in their talks as well and welcome those, you know, what is imposter syndrome and, and how do you acknowledge it and how, you know, how can we start to try and get over it? It normalizes that for everyone so that we don't feel like we're alone or we're silly or, you know, even talking about the fact that, you know, give yourself a break presenting might actually help someone to go, that's actually really true. Mm. If I just be me and make a joke, the fact that I need to read my slide out because I can't remember my point, that's fine. And the audience will laugh and you'll all move on and it'll be great. Yeah. So I was going to ask for for those that have not heard of ComfyCon, can you give us a little bit of background about how it all started? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So it was basically Ian had been overseas. He was in Scotland and got caught when COVID first sort of hit back in early 2020. And he got back from Scotland, jet lagged straight into isolation and then went out there and said, what if we do a conference online because I can't leave the house for seven days? And I was like, that sounds awesome. Yeah, let's do it. And it basically came out of that. It's zero budget. We don't take any sponsorship just because we don't want to make it into something that's too serious or needs to be polished. Essentially, we just want it to be fairly chilled out. We got up to about 300 watches on a video you know, live, which I think is pretty amazing for the industry and, you know, the size of the industry in Australia. And we were able to give an opportunity for so many different speakers to actually get out there and just give it a shot. And in a no pressure, no pressure situation, you know, you could speak for 10 minutes, you could speak for 30. Ian and I just talk shit a lot. So it makes people feel comfortable that if they don't really talk about anything that makes sense, then they can as well. But yeah, really, it just came out of Ian being in isolation and wanting to do something. And he's super awesome when it comes to building the community. So we have a really strong ComfyCon community now on Discord and a lot of support and volunteers when it comes to running the conference. We have we have more volunteers and support than we need. It really is a very, very simple conference. We're branching out. We're moving off of Zoom this time and going to StreamYard. That's probably about our first step in a direction that's a little bit more advanced than what we've done before. But we've just kept it really, really super chilled and easy for us to organize. You know, not having sponsors, not having money to deal with, all of that stuff just makes it super easy for us to organize it as well. And then it's less stress for everyone. I think it's a testament to the kind of event that it is in that we're going back to in-person events, but people still want ComfyCon to happen. You know, they're not ready to get rid of, even though we've been saying we're over virtual, it's, I think it's an event that's going to stay around for a long time yet. Yeah, I think so too. And I hope so. I'm super keen to get back to in-person events as well. And I know that, you know, when the virtual events first kicked off, people, you know, there's some comments around in-person events are never going to happen now because organizations won't pay for them because you can do them virtually. But I just don't believe that. There's such a big value in networking. And if an organization doesn't really realize that, then they're not giving their employees the best. And, you know, as a vendor, that in-person networking is super, super important. And having worked in vendors pretty much my entire career, it's always been important to get out there and, and meet people. But 
There are also a bunch of people who either can't or won't go to conferences, you know, accessibility, anxiety. There are a whole lot of reasons that people miss out on going to conferences and then they miss out on hearing all of these fantastic talks. Sometimes the conferences will put them up and make them available afterwards, but not always. So, you know, that was something else that we actually had a fair few people that came back to us and said, we really appreciate the virtual conference because we're not able to go for you know, several different reasons to in-person conferences. And it's just given them a place to be included when it comes to the security kind of conference scene. And if someone was living in a regional area and they, you know, didn't have budget to fly into one of the cities to go to a conference, yeah, there's a whole, there's a whole audience out there um, that will still want that virtual conference for sure. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and free, you know, like sure it's on a weekend. I mean, we record, but it's free. Join if you feel like it, you know, we we get people that just stream it to their TV all day and just sort of walk around the house and it's streaming on their TV. So you don't need to be concentrating all the time. You can come back and watch talks if you want to. It's been a really, really fun community to be a part of over the last two years and I think it'll keep going for sure. We'll have to come up with some other weird logos. So I was responsible for the logo this time. It had to have a flamingo in there. I'm going to work from anywhere. It's going to be on a flamingo in a pool. Yes. (laughs) Well, I had the pleasure of meeting Ian only a couple of weeks ago in person, but I only ever knew him from like his little Twitter face. So when I actually met him, I was like, oh, my God, you're Mr. CoffeeCon. I felt like a bit starstruck. But I have to say you guys have been so incredibly supportive of our Project Freedman participants too because I think we've got about five or six and it was one event that so many of them applied for because they've attended themselves and I think they had that confidence to to apply because they've seen other people perhaps present for the first time too and I think that allowing those modified formats to present for as long as they wanted to too was wonderful for them. You know, it's not... 45 minutes, Q&A, done. You know, it was, there was a bit of flexibility. So that made the whole application process simple for them. We've even had people use FaceRig. I'm pretty sure we had two talks in the first ComfyCon where they use FaceRig. So, you know, being actually putting your own face on the screen wasn't a necessity either. So if they wanted to hide behind FaceRig and, and become a dog or whatever they wanted or a potato, then that was okay. <laughs> you know, we wanted to give people that option. If you don't want to put your face on the screen and talk that way, that's all right. It's obviously better if you can see people, but sometimes people don't want to be seen. So we kind of try and respect everyone like that. And especially if it's your first time talking, maybe you just want to have your camera off for the first time. If you feel a little bit more confident that way, then do it. And then next time, you know, turn your camera on and it might feel a little bit better, but just want to be, make it easy for the speakers so that we get good speakers and we can provide an awesome event for everyone that way. So yeah, it's a, it's, it's a pleasure having, we've got pretty much a 50% identify as male and then 50% identify as female or non-binary. So, um, or other, I think we've got in there. So yeah, I think that's a really testament to, I, I'm not actually sure what Ian said. I don't even know how we did this. And obviously, you know, the Project Friedman has helped but, you know, that's five or six out of around about 15 or so. 
So it's, um, I think it's just having the community behind it that's been super supportive. It's an event that they felt comfortable applying for. And I think that's the big difference. We spoke about this before we started the podcast, but a big kind of fear factor is not even just the standing on the stage, it's actually putting themselves out there to apply to be a speaker. That's nerve wracking in itself. And then often, you know, they get rejected quite a few times before they you know, they get an acceptance. So even just that first step of applying that process was great with you guys. So we're really appreciative of that. And I think that's really great for the industry. Yeah. And conferences like so besides Melbourne, so Lydia, they actually provide support when it comes to doing the call for paper. And they have a little bit more of a formalized structure behind how they actually do their reviews and they have a review panel, which is really great, but they actually will then help people if if it's your first time or you're not very confident, we'll help you put together what we expect you to do, which is very, very handy because sometimes, you know, it'll be like you need to do a call for paper and, and what is your synopsis and you don't know how detailed you need to be. Do I need to write an entire paper? Like, Do I actually need to have a, a, it's a call for paper. Is this is like my research paper behind this that I need to submit? Is it an abstract? Like how detailed do I need to be? And you don't often get a lot of guidance on that. But I think too, the other thing is, is the more you talk and the more seen you are in the industry, the more opportunities that will come your way. So I'm not going to say that I haven't applied to anything that I've been rejected from. Uh, It's not to say that I've really applied for things that have been too huge. I might go out there and apply for RSA APAC next year maybe or maybe even right back Asia. do it, do it. (laughs) But I think, yeah, when the more that you're out there speaking and out and about, it really helps because people can then go and say, oh, wow, yeah, they've talked at such and such. So you do get a little bit of credit for speaking. And, I mean, even ComfyCon can give that little bit of credit. You know, this is not the first time, okay, look, you've actually put yourself out there and we'll give you another shot as well. So, That's great advice. I can see we're... Sadly, we're out of time. I can't. I can't yes. believe that already because we could talk to you I can for hours. Talk. Um, <laughs> it's definitely something that I can. I can do. It's been so lovely having you on the podcast and hearing about your journey. I, I yeah, it's it's um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for for sharing some time with us, LP. Did you have any last words? Well, look, I would say it always surprises me when people talk about you know, their nerves and how they get nervous because I never, having met you, you know, a few times in person and seen you presenting, I never would have guessed that. So, you know, whatever you're doing, it's incredible and you're masking (laughs) it really well. But I think it always is good for people to hear, especially first time presenters or people who are nervous themselves, the more that they realize that we're all in the same boat. No one really loves it. We all get nervous. We all have some sort of physical reaction. I think it's it's so good for people to hear it. But I would say that I would never have guessed that with you because you just have such a presence when you do present and, you know, you've done some incredible things in the industry. Creating a whole event yourself is just, you know, the icing on the cake. So thank you for being so open about, you know, your experience and your in your background because I think that's going to be fantastic for people to hear. I, I love being able to talk about it as well. I think it's mm. super important talking about what's hard as, what is, as well as what's easy. We're all really vulnerable and pretending that we don't have weaknesses just doesn't help 
anyone. So, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to share and I'm happy actually that I get good feedback that people are really appreciative of hearing these things as well. So, yeah, but thank you. Thank you. It's been an honour to be on here. Thank you so much. No, thank you. If people want to follow you, are you on social media? I am on social media. I'm on Twitter mainly. So I'm fancy underscore forensics. So fancy forensics. I am on LinkedIn. I'm linkedin.com slash IN slash Shanna Daily, I believe. You can find me on there. Twitter's the way to go, everyone. If you want to see horses, dogs, gardens. Yeah, I don't t- to post much on LinkedIn because LinkedIn, I don't post my dogs and horses. So no. I'm always on Twitter just posting stuff. And I find most of my information on Twitter anyway when it comes to cyber and, and some of the threat intel. So I, I tend to stick to Twitter a fair bit more. So. And final plug, ComfyCon is what date? 9th and 10th of April. You can just go to the website, au.comficon.rocks. You can get an email sent to you. You can subscribe to get an email when we're kicking off with the uh, YouTube or Twitch links, um, whichever ones are going for this time, probably YouTube. We have a YouTube channel, ComfyCon AU. You can go check out that and that will have the start date and time closer to, but there's no registration. We, we don't require it. If you want to join the Discord, there's a link on the website as well to get an invite to that. And that way we just keep all of the talking in one place and we don't have... yeah trying to monitor different areas when it comes to conversations or people asking questions. So yeah, it's just basically free to air on YouTube. If you don't want to register, don't want to join discord, just watch. And we're happy with that. Fabulous. Well, we'll be tuning in. Excellent. Look forward to it. Thank you for supporting um, the project Friedman ladies who are going to be presenting. Really appreciate your support with that. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks to you and Ian massive. I look forward to many more. (laughs) (laughs) This podcast has been made possible thanks to sponsorship from the Australian Signals Directorate. For updates on Women Speak Cyber and our initiatives to help elevate, grow and retain women speakers in cybersecurity, follow us on Twitter at Women Speak Cyber or find us on LinkedIn.